Hello, podcast friends. I believe there would be a major positive shift on this planet if my country, the United States, were to adopt a feminist foreign policy. I tweeted that sentiment after interviewing my current guest, Christina Luntz. I was a little nervous. I don't know exactly why. Speaking your truth is always a little scary, especially for us women. But I got a lot of likes on Twitter from men and women alike. So it was pretty interesting. Um, what is a feminist foreign policy? I will let Christina Luntz uh, mostly answer that because she's so good at it. But I will say that uh, at the outset, like this podcast does, it's processes and leadership that build common ground rather than dividing and polarizing people. It emphasizes more of the win-win, less win-lose processes for resolving differences. Frankly, the egocentric, I want it now and it's your fault that I can't get it, the blame game is wearing super thin on me. Drumming up conflict and zero-sum thinking, attacking people to get your needs and interests met as a style is, well, uh, not just developmentally juvenile, but uh, just plain dangerous. It creates one homogeneous world with probably mostly white straight men on top with the rest of us supporting them and dependent on them for handouts and our survival. Yuck, sorry, not interested. And I know so many women and men who also are not interested. This podcast advocated empowering women, not just because it's an end in itself, which it is, but because it's the most powerful way to get to a more peaceful and sustainable planet for all of us. You get real democracy when you have real democracy starting in the home and um, better sex too, by the way. Uh, I, I hope you've noticed that what the countries with the best coronavirus responses have in common is that they are run by women, not because there aren't many great men leaders out there, but because these women are more probably more effortlessly bringing to the table the quality of collaboration, which is so sorely needed on the planet right now. Hopefully this pandemic is underscoring deeply our interdependence and need for collaboration. As uh, Kurt Lewin, grandfather of social psychology said long ago, everyone understands authority, but democracy is a learned behavior. So the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy was co-founded by my current guest, Christina Luntz. Um, it's an international research and advocacy organization and was established in 2016. It's uh, dedicated to promoting feminist foreign policy across the globe. The problem, as they say, is just outdated patriarchal structures um, that are well past their expiration date. Um, that's my language. And uh, their vision is to create an intersectional approach to foreign policy globally. Research shows, Christina tells me, that the most significant factor toward whether a country is peaceful within its own borders or towards other countries is the level of gender equality. So, as she says, if that's true, it's pretty easy. It just means that there won't be any peace without feminism. Christina is an award-winning human rights activist, co-founder and Germany director of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy and advisor to the German Federal Foreign Office. She was also recently named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. She graduated with distinction from University College London School of Public Policy and did a second master's at the Oxford Department of International Development in Diplomacy. 
During her time in Oxford, she started getting involved in activism and has been campaigning since. Her bio, as always, will be posted on the podcast blog at susancoleman.global. I've learned so much from doing this episode and talking to Christina. A few of the many things that stand out. I spent years uh, going to The Hague uh, to work with ICTY, the International uh, Court for the former Yugoslavia, uh, a part of the UN, but wasn't aware until now that 100 years ago uh, in The Hague, during the First World War, about 1,500 women from all over the place um, came together for the International Congress for Women to demand an end to the First World War and establish a, a set of resolutions to avoid another world war, which included, for example, the dismantling of the industrial military complex, uh, the prioritization of mediation for conflict resolution, and the democratization of foreign policy. Super interesting. History is always so interesting. I found it really moving that Sweden has taken a stand um, and describes itself as having a feminist government and created a feminist foreign policy in 2014, uh, which was followed by Canada, followed by Mexico. Um, check out the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy's website to see the history of feminist foreign policy. Um, you know, it just shows what's possible. I found it interesting to hear about Emma Watson's uh, conversation with Valerie Hudson and uh, the latter's new book coming out called The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, which sounds like a really important contribution. And I hope to get her on the podcast soon to talk about it. Hope she'll agree. Um, as, as a result of talking to Rosina, I enjoyed reading the interview that she mentioned between Emma Watson, the actress, and Valerie Hudson, where Emma, one of the things that Emma has claimed is uh, because she's single is 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 self-partnering. And while I certainly have enjoyed my journey of the last 10 years living without a partner, though I've dated some wonderful guys, um, the idea of self-partnering somehow really struck me as like really empowering because I think still in our world order, living um, without the protection of a guy can still feel frightening to so many of women, myself included. So I'll stop there and let you listen to Christina Luntz, a woman who is really on fire and is going to do a lot to contribute to our common great future. Christina, it is such a pleasure to find you, really. I mean, it's so funny to me in the world how we can be in this uh, on this planet together, so many interesting people doing things that are related and not run into each other for a while. And then when I ran into you, I went, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I found, you know, this, this woman is doing amazing, amazing work. So thank you so much for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. <laughs> So, um, you know, you have founded something called, and let me make sure I have the name right, the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. Mm -hmm. And you are based, where am I finding you right now? Well, right now, during this pandemic, I'm in the Bavarian countryside in Germany, but normally I'm based in Berlin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know all of us are in our homes. And, and uh, how, is, how has this been going for you, this craziness that we are all living with? Um. I mean, I personally, um, 
I'm really well off and um, I'm very privileged like to have my family here in the countryside so that I could kind of escape Berlin and um, do my bit about staying inside, not running into other people to kind of flatten the curve. Um, so I'm personally really well um, in my work. We're, we're lots concerned about what this current crisis means to different aspects. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, I find when I thought about it, I thought, well, what can, you know, what's the best I can do? And I I thought, well, the best I can do probably is stay out of the hospital system and stay out of people's way yeah. and do the best possible work I can about what I'm doing because exactly. it is related. It's not immediately related to the crisis, but mm. it's certainly related in the big term to the crisis. So, um, so why don't we launch right in and. You tell me something that I'm sure you answer all the time. Uh, what is a feminist foreign policy? How would you describe that? So uh, feminist foreign policy for us, um, it's like a tool to analyze power. Um, like it goes back to the concept of social power. So um, like who gets to set the agenda, whose lived experiences and needs are taken into consideration and who's making decisions. So for us, for my organization, Feminist Foreign Policy, means that kind of in a first step, we acknowledge that inequalities and gender inequalities, one of them, exist globally. And in a second step, we demand that all tools of foreign and security policy are used to eradicate those inequalities because we know, because research shows that the most significant factor towards whether a country is peaceful within its own borders or towards other countries is the level of gender equality. So it that's I mean it's pretty easy. It just means that there won't be any peace without feminism. Let me just highlight what you just said because uh, on this podcast we've been saying pretty consistently that the most impactful peace building initiative that could be undertaken is to get sometimes I say get gender right, but gender equality really you know when you look at the at the relationship between what happens in the home and workplaces in the world if you mm -hmm. get gender right suddenly you have a very different world and I think that's what you just said if I heard you right. Exactly, exactly, exactly that. And um, it wasn't only this week that, <laughs> that Emma Watson uh, published this um, interview she did with um, Valerie Hudson and Valerie Hudson and her work, like the professor um, from Texas, um, her work has been really instrumental and important for our work because like she, um, she's done lots of research on the link between what's happening in the home and the power relations in the home and like kind of this first political order, what she calls and how this translates to um, relationships within a country, but also interstate um, relationships. So exactly what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. What's her name again? Valerie Hudson. Okay. Highly recommend Beautiful. her. Um, I have to say personally, um, uh, I, I almost, uh, well, I did start to cry when I was I was looking over your web your website is so great it's got so many wonderful things on there um, but um, I was looking at the history of feminist foreign policy mm -hmm. and that was really moving to me and mm -hmm. particularly because I have some very close Swedish friends and um, we're all often talking about uh, you know she one of them is very close to me. any any of the ways I grew up in a very patriarchal family mm -hmm. where you know I grew right up right in the heart of Wall Street you know. Uh, surrounded by all of it, you know, and also the, the around the Vietnam War and uh, my my uh, undergraduate degree was, you know, basically in imperialism. I didn't call it that, but that was basically <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, when I was looking at the history of, of feminist foreign policy, I, I was so moved by just that Sweden 
I guess, is it was at the at the ground ground floor of this. It says something like equality between women and men is a fundamental aim of Swedish foreign policy. Mm. Ensuring that women and girls can enjoy their fundamental human rights is both an obligation within the framework of our international commitments and a prerequisite for reaching Sweden's broader foreign policy goals on peace and security and sustainable development. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I mean, I just think, because I think, and I'm interested in your view on this, I maybe because I'm a U.S. citizen, I feel like my, uh, it's, it's part of what motivates me to do what I do is that I have been right at the, you know, like, right at the heart of, I think, the nature of, right at the heart of the beast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I'm a woman. And that affected me really differently. Power was I was a second class citizen. Uh, I was there to serve, not to be the one who's going to be the dominator. And I feel like my country really has been, um, you know, in terms of, well, I guess I would say that if my country were to engage in a feminist foreign policy, that would be quite a shift on the planet. (laughs) Right. That would be quite something. Right. So what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about Mm, I mean, I can maybe, maybe that's interesting to some of the, the listeners, like a little um, overview of the history of feminist. Film. I would love to hear that. I think it would be really, it's very interesting. And it was news to me and I've been trying to pay attention. Maybe that's mm. my bad, but it was still news to me. So <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Um, so yeah, you mentioned Sweden. So in 2014, indeed, um, after Sweden had already called itself a like a feminist government in 2014 they also introduced a feminist foreign policy and whilst sweden and margot wallström the then foreign minister um she like all credit is to her definitely because they're the first country that officially um, announced the feminist foreign policy but also it's i think it's important to acknowledge um in that regard the incredible work of feminist organizations that had been done like decades before Sweden announced their feminist foreign policy. So it was, it was like, it was a hundred years ago that in The Hague during the First World War, um, 1,500 feminists from like um, all over the place, um, countries came together in, in The Hague for the International Congress of Women to demand an end to the First World War and, um, and um, published a set of resolutions to avoid another world war. And they included, for example, the uh, the dismantling of the industrial military complex and the prioritization of uh, mediation for conflict resolution and the democrat democratization of foreign policy and many more. So feminist foreign uh, feminist civil society organizations they have been doing incredible work. Um, and based on all this research and knowledge, and then in the 80s, feminist international relations theory became more prominent. Um, like based on all of this, in 2014, Margaret Wallström, Wallström is, is feminist and, and vocal as she she has been had been for many years. She announced Sweden's first uh, the, the world's first feminist foreign policy in Sweden, and then very shortly after, well, well, in the beginning. And when you read interviews, first of all, how was that received? If, if yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good question. Like when it, it's funny, like when you listen to her when she speaks about it, um, she says like in the beginning there were, were lots of giggles. People didn't take her seriously, um, in her country, and and others were like, like this is funny foreign affairs, foreign policy. I don't remember an um, article um, about um, it's called something like. Swedish women against Putin or something like that. And everyone was confused, like, what the hell is a feminist foreign policy? So she did so much explaining. But like, 
very soon after, other countries started following. So it was in 2017 that Canada announced their feminist international assistance policy, so feminist development policy. And then um, in 2019, last year, on um, International Women's Day, France announced a feminist diplomacy um, in Mexico. In January this year, they announced their feminist foreign policy. Um, I would say that, that was really heartening to see that, actually. That was amazing, yeah. right? Yeah, it's really the first amazing. country of the Global South to um, announce a feminist foreign policy. And it's but I like the fact that both of, uh, of my neighbors to the North and the South have done this, you know? Right? right. <laughs> Put down the squeeze. Put down the squeeze. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and now, because... I mean, we have, um, as my organization, we've just looked like intensively into like the history because we just um, submitted a report on EU, European Union Feminist Foreign Policy Commission by the Green Party in the European Parliament, um, a report on feminist foreign policy and what um, EU feminist foreign policy should look like. And in this process, we looked into um, 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 the history. So the, like currently there are more countries. There's, for example, like very recently Luxembourg and Spain and and Cyprus, Cyprus and Malaysia, uh, who all of them announced that they're looking thoroughly into either announcing a feminist foreign policy or a gender equal foreign policy. And even the, the German foreign ministry, uh, yeah, the German foreign ministry in, in March on the occasion of International Women's Day, they presented in a whole day conference that the minister himself presented a report on German foreign policy and gender equality. That was the first of its kind. So there's this interesting... Does, does Germany have a feminist foreign policy? I, I don't no. Know. No. No. Not yet. No. So that was kind of the, the first very prominent step into... Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't like... Germany does definitely not have a feminist foreign policy, but they are, they've been doing very good work, especially in women, peace and security, um, for the past one and a half years and beyond a little bit. Um, so like this report um, was really interesting to see and it's very self-critical um, because the German foreign ministry, like so many other ministries around the world, I mean, they excluded, proactively excluded women from the diplomatic service for until the 50s um, and in other countries it was even um, beyond that. And uh, yeah, it's impressive steps even in Germany, such a conservative country. So uh, not not to make this too focused on the United States, but because I think I am, that, that's the passport, that's my home. I'm curious of your perspective on the U.S. in all of this. Mm. So um, with, and uh, let me mention that research because it might be interesting for re uh, listeners as well. The um, two researchers, um, Biglio and Fogostin at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, um, Washington DC, they very recently, like a few weeks ago, they um, published their research on gen, it's called gender equality in foreign policy. So they've looked at the different initiatives around the world. And um, I'm pretty sure it was the US who had the very first ambassador role on women, peace and security. Um, so, and I mean, it was Hillary Clinton who said the famous words of like women's rights and human rights. And like she as the Secretary of State, um, she initiated a couple of very interesting initiatives. Um, and then we all know it went very downhill and things that on kind of economic empowerment of, of, of women, especially led by um, Ivanka Trump, that is what feminist organizations call like pinkwashing. Um, so there's nothing hopeful in that regard happening at, at the moment. Um, 
but there are organizations who are um, who are, who are pushing and um, who we're working with. One of them is the International Center um, for Research on Women that is based in um, in Washington D.C. as well, and together with ICRW and in my organization, but also um, representatives of those governments that have a feminist front policy, we recently um, um, published a kind of the, the, a golden standard framework on feminist foreign policy. And um, we presented it during a press conference um, early, early March in New York. Um, and they, this organization, the International Center for Research on Women, um, they're currently working on a, um, what would you call it, like a proposal or advocacy paper on what a feminist foreign policy for the US should look like. And they want to have it ready once the new, hopefully new president um, starts their work. Uh, I know. Um, so they are really leading um, the work on feminist foreign policy um, in the U.S. Thanks for that. Um, you know, one of the things I'm noticing around the world uh, is that every time uh, somebody is bold in their language, I get more bold and hopefully vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I just loved how you, you know, you put out right on your website, um, the foreign policy status quo is rooted in patriarchal values and perpetuates <laughs> systemic violence through capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism. Uh, these systems negatively impact different people in different ways based on their gender, race, ethnicity, class, socioeconomic status, sexuality, and more. Um, you know, I thought when I was interviewing, I interviewed a young woman in South Sudan, Rio Yuyata, who is an amazing activist, mm -hmm. and I noticed how her language, my language, we're both like, you know, encouraging each other. We're different mm -hmm. age groups, but it's just encouraging each other to get more clear about calling things what they are. And now I'm also noticing in um, with COVID that is also making me a little bit to throw caution to the wind and just say, I am calling things as I see it. Mm -hmm. And um, but I wanted to ask you about you. And because you got some real fire in the belly, I can feel it, as we say. <laughs> and I and I wanted to just hear a little bit about your background, like what made you, I mean, this is maybe a longer story, but but some highlights about what made you a feminist, what gave you a fire in the belly, what has given you voice? Because I think for so many women, finding their voice is such a big challenge. It is such a big challenge. And it is, it is precisely because of this, like, tiring, patriarchal, society out there and like I mean we and I'm going to probably respond to your question in a second but like just this thought um like and and again it's researched by the Council on Foreign Relations but also by um by a German NGO who's recently looked at civil society around the world the group that receives most hatred and attacks it is feminist organizations and it's women politicians and and women activists like every time a a woman, a feminist, speaks up um, about the status quo and challenges something like there's all this hatred coming your way. So um, it's just so frustrating. So well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think fundamentally it's that we are cheap labor. <laughs> fundamentally, and and uh, and men, and, and of course, many men are really are feminists. But but I think in general, the system of patriarchy supports a whole system of labor that is that is unpaid, cheaper, supportive of of men in power. And so, yeah, it would be it would be threatening, you know, yeah, to start yeah. tearing that apart. Exactly. And it's based on the idea that um, like that, that women are supposed to stay in the private and men in, in, in the public sphere. So whenever we challenge that um, and, and as women, as feminists make our voices heard, 
um, there's like all this attempts to silence those voices. Um, and for me, I mean, I've had my fair share of like hatred and like rape threats and threats against my family because so I've been involved in feminist activism for a couple of years now. Um, I I wasn't raised as a feminist. Um, I grew up in a tiny village in in the south of Germany in, in the countryside. Eighty people live here, and uh, so it's a wonderful working class background family. Um, it's I had the best childhood here. But here in Bavaria, it, it, it's conservative, and um, the the idea of um, those who um, who work hardest um, would get the best positions in society—it's like really ingrained in society here. So no understanding of um, biases and structural discrimination, all of these. Um, and it took me until my uh, my um, postgraduate education that I first properly learned about human rights and globalization and and structural discrimination and feminism. And once I did, it was like my feminist awakening. I started seeing so many things and I started realizing that many things that made me uncomfortable when I grew up, especially like here as well, like things like the fact that all power positions in my village and around, that means the mayor and the, and the teacher and like the, um, in, in the, the, the tiny school here and um, the head of the supermarket and like, you know, all these like power positions in a village, they were all obviously ob occupied by men, but on top, very often by men like the, the driving school teacher here and some others who, who made us young women, girls, very uncomfortable very often at like the, the annual like sports association party or something. Like they did things and approached us in a way that made us uncomfortable, but then realizing at the same time that they are so respected by others, that really always left me with like a very, very unease feeling. And then later in my early 20s, when I did learn about feminism and patriarchy and the, and the, the whole history and how society developed and how power has been distributed, um, I I got very, very angry. And I started with, uh, I, I set up this campaign against Europe's most influential and powerful newspaper that is incredibly sexist and portrays always men as actors and like powerful people and women only in a sexualized way, objectified way. So I started this campaign and then it received quite some attention by national and international press. And from then on, I, I was involved in like different um, feminist activism um, during my studies. So and, what, and also, um, sorry, yeah. You know, you said you got angry and uh, that even that sometimes is a it's it's a, a challenge for people to connect to their anger and then act on it. And mm -hmm. it's such an anger is such an important uh, emotion, yeah. uh, a source of change. Uh, what do you think um, allowed you to connect to your anger and then move with it? Mm. Um, I guess the, the people. Um, to a big part, the people in my life at that time. Um, it was around the time when I um, I was studying in the UK whilst I was doing the activism in Germany. Um, that also gave me some distance, I guess, that was needed at the time. Um, so when I started with all this kind of activist work and this status quo challenging work, um, I met a, a woman in the, U in the UK. Um, her name is um, Dr. Silla Elworthy. Um, I interviewed her, yeah. <laughs> Oh, of course you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. Really wonderful. <laughs> Amazing. So Scylla, um, 
um, is a three times Nobel Peace Prize nominee and um, built several organizations focusing on uh, nuclear disarmament and localized peace building and feminism. Um, so Scylla came into my life at this very important point. And like, we've been very, very close friends um, since, and she's been my mentor since in life. Um, she has had one of the most profound impacts on my life. Um, so having someone like her who also, like, I will never forget, like back then when I first felt this anger and like many different feelings, like fear and anger. And I was in sadness when all those people, men attacked me. Um, um, she said to me, um, Christina, you know, um, anger is like fuel. Um, if you just like spray it around uncontrolled, it can cause a lot of harm. But if you channel it in a way um, that it can be kind of be the fuel for your motor, um, it can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of things. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what your parents think about what you're doing, um, just because sometimes, um, well, that's always an interesting thing, how you have had, because uh, whether you've had to extract yourself from some of your core conditioning or whether mm -hmm. they have been able to be really supportive of you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So pretty much at the, sem at the time when I started getting involved like in feminist activism um it was when my dad passed away unfortunately mm, um so my um and like looking back i think like this overwhelming like incredibly overwhelming sadness and and grief that i felt um because i'm like i'm a daddy's girl <laughs> um so the the sadness that i felt then it kind of also the, this like strong feeling was also part of kind of the fuel for me um it like looking back like uh, in my head I'm thinking about like how my dad passed away and then I went back to London to continue studying and then to Oxford and stuff and um and feeling all those feelings and but still want to do something and like channel those feelings and do something meaningful um that in a way was a like big part of it um was he he was supportive of you he was empowering to you um Regarding the feminist work, I would actually be curious. I think yeah, he yeah. would be, because there was, he would I'm guessing be. I'm guessing he would be. I just looking at you and thinking about it, I'm guessing that he, he would be, but who knows? Yeah. But but for everything else, yeah. Yeah. He was like literally one of the, the last things he learned about me because I was I came back home from my studies in London to be here um during kind of the, the, the past couple of weeks. Um, one of the last things he learned was that I was accepted to Oxford. And whilst he had no idea what Oxford was, um, he, he confused it with Harvard. Like he told some of his friends, I was listening to that conversation. Yeah, my daughter got accepted Harvard. I'm like, no. Yeah, same idea. But, like, you know? same. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, but he was very proud and extremely supportive. Um, I, I found it really interesting over the years uh, when I was doing work in Afghanistan with women leaders and in different places and in my own life, just seeing when fathers are supportive of daughters, what a huge difference I think it often mm -hmm. makes in terms of them finding their voice and them being able to step out into the world. And, yeah, exactly. Like, whilst he um, he didn't know much, like he, we never talked, unfortunately, we never talked about feminism because it was not one of my topics back then, but um, so I would be really curious, but like he didn't know much about these things, but like every time I was, when I was studying in London and, and I was completely overwhelmed with everything, every time I called him, he was like, 
come on, Tina, don't let them get you down. You can do it. You can do it. And um, yeah, he was, he, he was just amazing. Um, and he always said, if anyone like annoys you, speak up. Like you find your voice and like you tell them, tell them off and don't let anyone put you down. Um, there, yeah, you exactly. there you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. There's the message. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you were saying, I don't know if you want to say anything about your mom or. or... Your mom. Yeah, she's really cute. Um, she, she also like, it's like feminism, the idea and like concepts of patriarchy and like all those heavy subjects. It's like nothing that is of huge relevance here in conversations in the village. Um, but my mom, um, she, she keeps asking and only recently, like she was like, Oh, Christina, so what exactly are you doing? And how can I translate it into German when I want to explain to someone? So, and she, like, she mainly thinks that I'm doing good things for women's rights and she's very proud of that. And that's, that's enough. So yeah, yeah she's very proud. Beautiful. So, you know, I think I, I'm heavily gestalt trained. And one of the things in terms of intervening in, or, in organizational systems is we're always talking about, you know, having a very compelling vision. If you have if you have a very compelling vision, lots of times the system will move towards it. And uh, and it seems like, you know, you're in the process of, of articulating that. And I wondered if you could uh, as best you can, as simply as you can, you know, because it's obviously probably a long conversation, articulate uh, where, you know, the vision, what's, what are you moving towards? What's the point in the future? What is it? What's the positive thing that you would like to create here? Mm. So I personally, but also with, um, with our organization, um, we are, we're trying to contribute, um, to a world and a future that is, um, based on, yeah, on a fair distribution of power. And that simply means, that all groups of society, like to the, the extent that they are represented in society, should have access and also the right um, to influence policymaking and especially decisions about their own security. And once the variety and the the kind of this yeah this beautiful variety of like different needs and ideas and and um, and lived experiences makes it into policymaking. Um, I am, we are convinced that we managed to create a world um, where there will not be racism and sexism and misogyny and, and this like huge gap between the super rich and the very poor. Um, yeah, that's kind of the vision. Yeah. So Rianne Eisler has been a guest on my show a couple of times and has, you know, talked about, I don't know if you know her and know, know her work, mm -hmm. but about sort of dividing the world into models of domination and models of partnership. And with with the vast majority of human history actually being models of partnership, which Bill Yuri also, who's an anthropologist from Harvard, uh, has underscored as well. Um, but um, I think what Rianne talks about, which makes so much sense to me, and I think I said to you in the beginning, is is the connection between what's going on in the family and then what happens in the global arena and the connection to all the isms. Mm -hmm. I think so often people, um, particularly where in this country where race is such a, such a deep issue, um, often there isn't as much of a connection as I would like to see to what's happened around gender. Because I think if you are a kid in a home and you learn from the beginning that there is one parent that is more important than the other, you learn a one up, one down kind of constellation, which is the heart of patriarchy, essentially. It's the heart of patriarchal learning. And then you can apply it to all kinds of things like, okay, well, then people who are light skinned are more important than people who are dark skinned and people mm -hmm. who are, 
um, you know, gender queer are not as important as people that are gender normative and all the mm-hmm. all those kinds of uh, one ups, one downs. Um, does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Very much, very much. And um, the, the the professor that I mentioned before, Valerie Hudson, I, so her news book just came out. I haven't read the whole book yet, but like an article she wrote for us and it's exactly on this. She calls it the first political order. Exactly what you just mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say right now in the middle of COVID, I find myself getting pretty angry about all of this because uh, Stephanie Savell was also a guest on the show and she's from the Cost of War Project at Brown University. And they've done some amazing work about tracking, well, mostly U.S. military spending. But uh, when you look at just the U.S. around military spending, and you can look at it globally, too, but the U.S., of course, has been the biggest military spender. uh, We've been spending our money. On, on, thi- on the military, on military things that will not affect climate change, will not affect something like COVID, cannot protect us from a pandemic. Um, and yet my country has been so like, I don't know, like caught up in the, uh, I guess, the PR of all this, that we just go ahead and do it. And at this point, we're spending at least 57 cents of every dollar on military solutions. And there, it's not it's not doing anything for us except for coming up with more fancy bombers that we're not using and sometimes fancy video games that is like acculturating little boys and sometimes little girls, but mostly little boys so that they can be the warrior, the next round of warriors in this whole militaristic scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more women, I, I guess I have a thing, women for the global uh, north, um, particularly sometimes I'll just speak for my country, I I. I feel sometimes like I want to light a fire under all of us to kind of look at this because I don't I don't think women, if they're given the purse strings, I don't think they spend money. At least the experts tell me that we don't spend money quite the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more that women are really in charge of looking at budgets, the more we're going to say, no, actually, we're not going to spend money like that. We're going to spend money on meeting people's needs, which is what we need to do. We're going to spend money in this country on having a public health care system so we can prevent future pandemics um, and things like that. Yeah. For me, someone like an outsider looking at the U.S., I'm just um, I'm lacking words, pretty frankly, quite often. Um, I was in in terms of what's happening with with uh, the pandemic, with COVID, but also your like the lack of like a healthcare system and um, and healthcare insurance. And um, so I was in. I spoke at a conference at Harvard early March, and then from Boston went to New York um, for another event. Um, but was closely um, checking on the situation and already felt. Um, really weird about being there in the first place, but then being in New York and not and realizing that almost no one early March, like three weeks ago, was talking about COVID. I was I did this one Instagram story where I just like took a picture and like people everywhere, and I I wrote like this country or this city is like sleepwalking to a catastrophe, um, like this complete lack of leadership in this crisis now, um, on on um on a national level, um, it's it is absolutely incredible, um. And and I can't get my head around the fact that um, even if people get like to the hospital and will survive COVID if they had been infected, that many of them will not be able to pay their bills. Like that is someone who grows up in Germany. I'm, I, I, I can't grasp the fact that a country cannot provide health insurance for their citizens. It's like it's beyond imagination right. for me. Um, and so regarding COVID and like, feminist issues um exactly what you mentioned right the um, 
the the whole thing about so much money being spent on militarism and um and one of the the core issues of feminist foreign policy is disarmament and and organizations like the women's international league for peace and freedom for more than 100 years have now been calling to move the money to move the money from military to what keeps people really safe like to human security and that is healthcare education that is housing like all those topics um one a of good our, food system <laughs> yes yes everything and mm-hmm. um one of our we have and as an organization we have this incredible advisory board and one of our advisory uh, one of uh, our advisory board members Zanam Andalini um who's the the director of the London School of Economics Center for Women Peace and Security and also the founder of an organization called International Civil Society Action Network um Zanam published this widely read post last week on what has feminism to do with women peace and security and also made it very clear like like she posed the question like how how can it be like she's half american half um iranian and she said like how can it be that we are awash with weapons um but we do not have enough masks like to provide our healthcare workers with like what is this world we're living in and so my my center for feminist foreign policy we've been doing quite some communication work um around why covid is like a feminist issue um so we we've created we've built this um page on our website with all this all collected lots of resources and um identified like a couple of main themes like intimate partner violence violence against women that is rising hugely and the um and the unfair distribution of unpaid care work and but also um the deep prioritization of sexual reproductive health rights and more but also um how um, the um, like what keeps people really safe and that we that all this money is now lacking in those human security systems because money had been spent over decades in on militarism and we are we are currently the organize um, the organization in conversations with a ministry in Germany because we'll be doing some work with them on how to mitigate the and uh, the, the gendered impacts of covid and what can be done about that um and and i mean the knowledge is all out there and feminists yeah, yeah. have been saying it for so many years and i you think just push it in i think you know also for women uh, everywhere uh, bringing it inside and and uh, because obviously we uh, we can look outside but also i think the more that women really really take uh, take their leadership into their, you know, in, into their hearts. Understand? I mean, we're raising, we're raising kids. We're doing a lot of things. We're not the only ones raising kids now, but there's a, so many things we can do to shift this equation if we yes. really, if we really want to do it. And I think that, you know, the, the the thing, everything has gotten too dicey with climate change, and it's it's time. I mean, I love the women in Afghanistan. The women I worked with, they were calling themselves the fierce mothers of Afghanistan, and I feel like <laughs> that's what I am. I'm a fierce mother <laughs> of it. this planet. I'm fierce, you know, I really took, I was fierce about my kids, and now I'm feeling fierce, you know, about this whole damn thing. <laughs> So um, what is, I guess, just to, because to, we're running out of time now, but what is uh, um, most exciting to you in terms of what's unfolding and what are the next steps that can lead this forward? And how can people be most supportive to you um, to scale this work? Mm-hmm. Um, whilst the the state of this world um it's difficult um, from like for many reasons, and we just mentioned a couple of them. Um, there are 
good things unfolding. And one of them, definitely the like internationally, the rising, like the, the increasing strength of the feminist movement that we can see everywhere. Um, and especially in feminist foreign policy, like all the countries that I mentioned before that have either adopted a feminist foreign policy that are looking into feminist foreign policy or that are not doing any of them, but still collaborating with organizations like mine because they find it important. That's only been like five, six years. Mm. And so, so many countries um, have gotten involved. So that is really encouraging. Um, because more and more, I find that really exciting. I mean, just when I, so like exciting. I said, when I went to your website and I saw that, I saw the two, you know, 2014 Sweden and then saw hmm. d- different countries doing that. I thought, wow, this mm-hmm. is very cool. This yeah. is very, very cool. It is. Yeah, it is brilliant. Um, so there is, there is quite some traction. And mm-hmm. we as an organization, whilst, I mean, we're tiny, like my co-founder, she's in London. I have a co-director in Berlin. And then we have a handful of contractors um, and volunteers and we're only like <laughs> we're really young, um, but we receive like comparably um, so much interest and tiny, so, but with so, a very big message and, yes, and bold voices. Exactly, yeah. and like mm-hmm. all the like the, the the ministries and governments that approach us, and but also young women who say it's the first time that I feel like international affairs is also for me. Um, because how foreign affairs, international politics, diplomacy, I studied diplomacy at Oxford and always thought like Oxford is, it's like the place. And there were so many things lacking still. And I never felt that diplomacy is for me as well. But um, so we are the first, first, first the, the world's first organization on feminist foreign policy. And, and, and we are standing on so many shoulders of giants. And, and I can already see that so many others take inspiration from us. So it's like this this movement is getting stronger and, and we are collaborating like beyond national borders and beyond continents. Um, and it's just really encouraging. Yeah. And so, your last question regarding how people can support us. Um, yes. <laughs> we, have yes. A, a, we have a membership program and yeah. we're grateful for everyone joining us as a member. <laughs> what does that mean to do that and how do they do it? Um, so if you go on our website, that's the mm-hmm. Center for Feminist Foreign Policy dot org slash membership. Which is, by the way, I really recommend this website is wonderful to spend some time just, you know, touring around in it. There's a lot in there. Thank you. Thank mm. you. Um, yeah, you can become a member, the like different types of membership. And um, yeah. that way you can support us um, financially. And we share lots of like inside information and um, a specific newsletter. And they are beautiful. Well, Christina, thank you so much for your time. Um, as everybody seems to be saying these days, stay safe, stay strong, stay home. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> All um, of but I hope this is not the first time we we cross paths, and I hope that I can be supportive uh, to you in your work. Um, and uh, we can collaborate because I'm really just so impressed with what you're doing and so glad you're putting this on the agenda because I, you know, for many, many years at the, uh, I spent years at Columbia University and around mm-hmm. the School of International and Public Affairs and which, uh, you know, I have, I'm very grateful for many of the things that happens there and very aware of also uh, how deep some of the patriarchal structures are in mm-hmm. a lot of those institutions. And mm-hmm. it's time to, time to start you know, breaking them up, yes. moving things around. And I will say, I just think the world 
for men, women, for people, will be so much more pleasurable for it. For everyone. You know, I think that having a son who is just such a beautiful soul and watching how patriarchal structures uh, have molded him, limited him, he's fighting against them. But Amazing. boy, it just so limits mm -hmm. what men can feel and do yes. and be. Yeah. And so feminism is a very, I think, a very, very luscious thing for oh, all yes. people. <laughs> Most definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>